Welcome to Clark County Today. I'm your host, David Medore, and we have for our guest today, Mel Zucker. Uh, what's your background, Mel? Uh, I'm an MBA. I did work for the largest public accounting f firm, which also was the largest management consulting firm in the world. I was in uh, management consulting for maybe 10 years, and then I came out here and went in consulting on my own, uh, mostly in government in uh, project management. I've been involved in transportation. I was director of the Oregon Transportation Institute for many years. Okay, and you've been living in Portland for? 44 years. And right now I just am retired and I, I kind of fix my tractors. And <laughs> I spent a lot of time when I started to retire in the 90s at the Oregon legislature working with the transportation committees in both the House and the Senate. It started in 1986. Neil Goldschmidt became governor of Oregon. It changed everything in transportation. Neil was the father of light rail in Portland. Uh, he was mayor of Portland. Then he went to work for Jimmy Carter for a little while in transportation. Uh, and he got devoted to rail. Light rail is a uh, intra-city rail system. The max line is a light rail line, mm -hmm. which is not to be confused with heavy rail or intercity rail. Uh, heavy rail, uh, technically, we call heavy rail like subway systems. That's considered a heavy rail. And then we have the, uh, the intercity heavy rail, which is Amtrak now, mm -hmm. since, uh, since Amtrak was formed and the uh, private companies that owned all the uh, intercity uh, rail lines got out of the passenger business. You said Neil Goldschmidt was the father of light rail for this area. Where in the United States was was light rail a model for him? Uh, well, uh, he decided he was going to reinvent the flat tire. <laughs> <laughs> in that, he uh, he thought of the era of the trolley cars. A light rail is like a modern-day trolley car, although we now distinguish between light rail and trolleys. Trolleys went out of existence for a very good reason. They're very slow. They go point to point. And after World War II, people weren't living along trolley lines. They were living everywhere. And the thing that matters most when you're talking about passengers is door-to-door -door service. Light rail always shows you a schedule and say, well, we go from this station to this station in, in so many minutes or so many hours. Mm -hmm. But you've got to get to the rail, and then from the rail, you've got to get to your destination. So the thing that really matters, and it's very important because it's always overlooked, and that's why it's never been successful, because people might try it once or twice for a novelty, but then when they start saying to themselves, uh, why am I doing this? It's taking so much longer. Certain cities are made like Manhattan. Manhattan is an island. And at one time, all the commercial activity was in Manhattan. So people would have to get into Manhattan or from upper Manhattan down to lower Manhattan. They couldn't do it by car because there were very few bridges and only two tunnels that is going way back. Very high density. It's only 12 blocks wide and long, and it was densely populated. And what's interesting is um, uh, sprawl and transportation go uh, uh, hand in hand. Everybody forgets history. Santiana had a wonderful saying about those who don't remember history are bound to repeat the mistakes of the past. Mm -hmm. And the railroad, uh, the subways, in New York, which is the most successful system in the country by far, uh, and nobody even comes close. In fact, the, the statistics are all skewed, so when you take out New York City uh, 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 commuting, you take out most of the country. So New York City is the exception. Even going way back to the turn of the century, we had very tall buildings, and um, and what we had was Ellis Island where immigrants came to the country. They were poor immigrants mm -hmm. and so they all settled down in lower Manhattan. You get off the 
the, the ferry from Ellis Island after you get checked in, and then they would just walk to the nearby area and found a tenement where they could get a room. And we ended up with over two million people in a very tiny area, maybe 30 blocks by 10 blocks. The reason that subways came into being was to sprawl those people out of the density. And so that's when they opened up the lines and they went into the Bronx and people began to live in the Bronx and they came in by subway or Queens or Brooklyn. And you're talking about massive populations, because you know, even back then, uh, you're talking about uh, two million people in just one borough, the Bronx, two million people in Brooklyn, about a million and a half in Queens. There must be quite a contrast between that density and our density, downtown Vancouver. Oh, yeah, this would be a small suburb. <laughs> Were there other changes? Yes. The Oregon government was made up of a technical people. People in the transportation department were all transportation people. Uh, in revenue, they were accounting types. In all of the departments, when Neil came in, uh, the first thing he did was ask for every department has resignation and put in political people. Mm. He turned uh, a technical atmosphere into a political atmosphere. And if you go into um, well, the one I'm most familiar with is the Oregon Transportation Department, all of the higher echelon people are all political appointees. Matt Garrett, who now runs the Oregon Transportation Department, mm -hmm. he never had any transportation experience. He worked for Mark Hatfield. <laughs> Mark Hatfield was one of the senators from uh, Oregon, and Matt worked in his office. And when Mark was getting close to retirement, he got Matt a job working for ODOT. Oh, I remember the first time I met him, we were in a meeting in Salem, and they introduced me to him. And he was just a flunky who was just trying to learn. Nice guy, very nice guy, but he really has no transportation background. And that's the way they all are. I was not consulting for the transportation department. I was doing... Uh, pro bono work for the House and Senate Transportation Committees. Grace Kronikan, who was uh, appointed to be the uh, head of uh, ODOT, the only experience she had was lobbying for APTA, the American Public Transit Association, and she was put in there just for that. So it was more to an advance an agenda. Uh, absolutely. Rather than to manage projects and having the technical expertise. Absolutely. And if you look at the, uh, the CRC, Columbia River Crossing, tolling committee. It, it's all political, the people who work for the governor of Oregon and with the governor of Washington. They call it public outreach, but it has nothing to do with informing the public. It has everything to do with educating the public as to their agenda. Their, quote, experts are carefully picked to say exactly what they want them to say. And usually they have involvement with projects. For example, in Oregon, the uh, Oregon Transportation Commission is headed by Gail Ackerman. She used to be with a thousand friends of Oregon. A thousand friends is the uh, anti-road, anti-sprawl group. They have a thousand friends of Oregon, a thousand friends of Washington. Each state has a thousand friends. It's a political organization, and she's chairman of the OTC. So there's an agenda there. So it's not surprising that the name of, of some of those firms that help in public outreach also have contracts to do work on light rail expansion. For instance, if we're going to have authorized tolling studies, it sounds like there may be already a predetermined agenda rather than let's do a study to find out what the pros and the cons. You're absolutely right. It's an advertising campaign. In the 90s, when uh, John Kitzhaber, who's now governor again uh, in Oregon, uh, he couldn't get anything to do with roads through. And one day when I was testifying before the House Transportation Committee, Bob Montgomery was chair. I said, you know, everybody is denying the value of roads. And I suggest we ought to have one day a year, one work day a year, where we have Freeway Appreciation Day and close the freeways. 
and that will make people realize how valuable they, they really are to our existence. Everything we do is affected by the road system. Now, people say, oh, well, well, what about rail? Well, rail will take you to a place where if, they, if they're bringing in, like, cars from somewhere else. But then they've got to be offloaded and taken to the, where the consumers are. All the food that comes to market, all the things that go into building anything, all come on roads. Uh, you know, this whole denial of the importance to our economy and to our personal living it's all being denied. You would think that the Department of Transportation would be the first ones to understand the importance of roads and have the responsibility for maintaining and being really very knowledgeable when it comes to knowing how best to improve those roads. Uh, in many states, they still do. In states like Oregon and Washington, it's become totally politicized. I've watched the turnover in transportation departments, and all of the people who used to work in roads either waited because they were close to retirement and then left, or else just left to go to work somewhere else, because there was just no uh, future for them. People that were coming in were all transit-oriented. Well, the transportation is basically still funded mainly by gas taxes, is that right? Yes, all of the funding for light rail, except a few of the local matching taxes, all of light rail's money comes from gas taxes paid by auto users. So I think of gas taxes as a user fee. That money goes in to pay for the construction and the maintenance of roads, bridges. And instead, it sounds like for Oregon, uh, what percentage of those taxes are going for roads compared to light rail? Well, federal tax in Oregon and Washington, the Constitution requires that gas taxes and car registration fees be used for the wording in Oregon is roads and roadside rests, and it's very close. And what happens is that that money gets diverted into sidewalks, bike lanes, medians, landscaping, solar along the highways <laughs> instead of roads. States usually put out a document describing all of the roads, roads within counties, roads within cities, roads within federal lands. And actually, when you take away the auto lanes that have been used for expansion of sidewalks and bike lanes, we have a loss in the amount of lanes. We build new lanes, but we are taking away in cities like Portland more for other things. The state constitutions of both Oregon and Washington say that the gas taxes are to be used basically for highways. And so it really has to do with how you define what is a highway or, or what, what, what are these transportation funds to go for. They redefine that. Is that happening both in Oregon and Washington similarly? Oh, yes. More in Oregon. Oregon started first, and then Washington came along. The, for example, when they go build a light rail line, all the roads that go into the to the right rail stations and things like that, that's all paid for out of the gas tax fund, even though it's really the end is a transit use. Mm. Now, that's uh, state funding. Federal funding is different. The feds allow money to be used for transit. 22% of national federal funds, federal highway trust fund goes to transit. It includes both the new buses and replacement buses. And it includes new rail systems and replacement cars for rail systems. Do they differentiate between uh, rail systems, light rail, and bus systems? Or do they just lump it all together and say, well, this 20-some percent should be uh, going to something in this category? That's left to what we call MPOs, Metropolitan Planning Organizations. And when you get out of metropolitan areas, then ODOT or WASHDOT, they do it for the lands out of metro areas. But the metro areas, uh, uh, by federal law, were created to take the funds that are sent down, except for New Starts programs. New Starts programs are the initial money for a rail line, a brand new rail line. It's never buses. New starts is, is uh, in fact, the proponents of using all that money for rail say, well, we can't use it for anything else. Well, that's not true. You can use it for HOV lanes. You can use it for whatever you want.
in Houston, they do. I mean, and, and uh, see, that's another thing to distinguish. Many states uh, don't have light rail lines, mm -hmm. have very few buses, mm -hmm. and so you know that there can't be a federal law that requires you to do those things because they don't. And their, their situations are much different than California, Oregon, Washington, New York. On the West Coast here, Oregon and Washington, we've got a little bit different story going on. It sounds like here we have a push for the uh, light rail and transit in comparison to other, other areas where they focus more on constructing roads. Is there a good state that serves as a very good model for having excellent roads, excellent highways, good stewards of their finances in order to construct roads, maintain roads, that infrastructure, bridges, that kind of thing? They're using their gas taxes in a way that moves freight, moves vehicles. The one that always stands out, uh, uh, Texas, they have very large populations and they move a lot of people and they do it primarily on roads, although they have uh, gotten on this uh, light rail kick within the, well, the last several years. It's so political. It's turned into this a goodie program to re-elect people in office. The larger cities Philadelphia, Boston, uh, New York, Washington, D.C., Miami, and um, the larger cities on the West Coast, they have their, their agenda. But the dirty little secret is that when you're getting an earmark, the politicians sell it as, well, if we don't get that money, it'll go somewhere else. I've heard our, our mayor say that. Our politicians that might want to, our delegation that might want to bring it here, mm -hmm. have got enough votes to get them passed. The only way they get their earmarks is by agreeing to vote for the other guy's earmarks. So everybody's, you know, drinking out of the same trough. And in places that don't have rail, they'll get earmarks for something else. But we don't get anything special out of it. If we get it, we're voting for the other guy to get it. And so we're all really paying for it. So we're driving up the cost. It's always been a wish of mine that we wouldn't have any money coming from the federal government. And we would have to make decisions locally. We would never spend the money so badly if we knew it was directly coming from us. Isn't the federal money directly coming from us anyway? It's I mean, indirectly. Gas taxes, it right? goes into the federal trust fund, and then it's sold as, oh, we're going to get that stuff out of the federal trust fund. And if we don't get it, it's just going to go to somebody else. Well, it already is going to somebody else. That's how you got it. I'm curious. In business, the normal market study is done first. You have a, a supplier who can make many different things in their field of expertise and they determine what they think their customer needs by going, talking with the customers and getting informed. And then they offer to the customer a solution to their problems at a price the customer is willing to pay. We have CTRAN here. I, I wonder about if they got that backwards. It seems like the initiative is coming from CTRAN rather than from the customers when it comes to, let's say, we've got fourth plane uh, we have high-capacity transit that is going to cost millions of dollars when along that route we have a lot of bus service that is working very well. I wonder about who's driving. Should the, the, the customer be saying, well, we need this service, please give us this service? Or is it the government at each level saying, we're going to just grow, we're going to wear a monster, we just do whatever we can just to grow? In private industry, you make decisions which will earn you money or cost you money. You'd make a bad decision, you pay for it. Government makes a bad decision and the taxpayer pays for it. It's other people's money. They don't think about limits. They don't think about cost benefit. It is just not, you know, a concern. Every agency wants to become bigger. Instead of every agency, I put in a recommendation 30 or 40 years ago that we should pay department heads more for spending less. Did that go anywhere? No. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Oh, I have had a lot of bills that didn't go anywhere. Okay. Now we have the CRC project here, the Columbia River Crossing Project, the uh, Light Rail Crossing Project. That is, it's a big deal here. It's going to cost a lot of money. Are we on the right track? What should be done? 
we inevitably need to do something about one span uh, of the two spans on I-5. We have problems. The one span is old and will need a lot of money to retrofit and be put into much better condition. It's very old. Of course, one of the nice things about having a bridge last so long with so many people and vehicles, trucks going across it, is that we get a lot of a lot out of our investments there. But it is a, a drawbridge, and that's bad. The idea of going to a higher capacity across the river is something that we started planning 40 years ago. It just it was not an acceptable thing for the city of Portland. The city of Portland is only thinking about the city of Portland. They don't give a darn about Clark County. They don't care about the suburbs. They only care about preserving downtown areas, which, by the way, everywhere in the world, not just in the U.S., central cities are declining. Suburbs are where all the growth is. That's everywhere, and I don't care even if you go out of this country. France, they're always saying, oh, look at Paris, look at, the, you know, they have that wonderful, uh, you know, system, and oh, it's all, they have the exact same pattern of growth as we do, and they go faster on the highways of Germany. <laughs> Yet, in Portland, they're trying to spend all of those resources, basically, where it's declining. The city of Portland, which hasn't attracted a major employer since 1977 when they had Vocker Siltronics come, come there, they are the political powerhouse. The city of Portland is the largest member of the League of Oregon Cities, which is one of the major lobbying groups on the political front. And the Multnomah County is dominated by the city of Portland, and they are the largest county, and they have the Association of, of uh, Oregon Counties, which is another huge lobbying group. And so they are the powerhouse politically. And Multnomah County really is the reason that we've had, since 1986, successive Democrat uh, governors. They do have that voting power uh, in, in that area. It reminds me of the wisdom of the Founding Fathers back when they created the Constitution for the United States. They assigned the House of Representatives, which is population-driven. You've got a big state like California. You may have 46 or 55, whatever the number is, of representatives. But the states also have only two senators per state. Rhode Island gets two senators. California gets two senators, so that you have equal representation from state to state. I believe it used to be also that in a state, that same principle applied, where you had a representative that was based on population, that was typically the assembly side of the house, and you had the Senate side of the house. In the Senate side of the house, you had one or two state senators that represented that county, so that if you had a, a small county or a large county, they all got the same representation. And the wisdom behind that would play out in that you don't have the city of Portland, a high-density population center, would not rule the state. The, as soon as it's all population-driven, all the power goes only to the high-density area, and you really don't have fair representation across the states. It would seem to me it would we'd get better government if we could allow the representation across the state to be based on the same model as the United States Constitution, where we have a Senate based on counties and a assembly that's based on population. What do you think about that? When the framers came to that uh, that time when they had to do the the two senators per state, that was a big compromise in order to get the Constitution passed. And, and get southern and northern votes. It's changed slightly, uh, and the the one equal voting thing that by the Supreme Court changed everything, but they can't change the basic thing about the two senators. Various states do their own thing with their own constitutions. Oregon is, is a customary thing where you have the House districts will be half of one state senator's district. 
In Oregon, there are uh, twice as many House members as Senate members, and then the districts used to be set up to conform to discrete patterns. But gerrymandering came into effect, and you have the most absurd districts. For example, the district that is known as the Bagel District is the city of Bend. The city of Bend was selected so that only the city voters could decide that district with a line part being in in different districts. And it's completely surrounded by other districts, and it makes no sense. It's a political game that happened in the 90, uh, oh no, that was the 2000 uh, redistricting bill and Bill Bradbury was uh, uh, Secretary of State. The Republicans had the uh, uh, House and the Senate, and they passed a, a redistricting bill, which conformed to nice, discrete districts. And then John Kitzhaber vetoed their bills, and under Oregon law, it went to the Secretary of State, who was Bill Bradbury, and he concocted these, and he did the redistricting, which... There is a movement in the legislature this year to have it set up by an independent commission to do the redistricting every 10 years when the U.S. Census is, is uh, done. Which sounds like it would bring some sanity to that whole process. It would. It would, <laughs> and, and, and get you better districts. I mean, rural uh, districts will always be very much larger in order to have the same number mm-hmm. of people. What's the advantage of having a House and a Senate if they're both basically population-based? Well, there are, uh, was it North Dakota, I think, is a unicameral system. They function okay with just one House. We don't really know how effective it is because in those less populated states, they don't have the diversity that we have in the more populated states. And their thinking is more uniform, and they come to agreements much mm-hmm. easier because they share so much but we have varying philosophies in some of the major cities. Even though people have always had varying ideas about things, they managed to get together because they had a lot more of common interest than we seem to have now. We've become very radicalized over the years. Some states became <laughs> so faster than, than others. New York City, for example, was always a basket case. You know, I mean, always going way back to 20th century in the 1900s, it was crazy, and and then it kind of spread. We have light rail that runs parallel with I-84. One of the arguments for putting light rail is that it's going to reduce congestion. Uh, Here we have a comparison. You got right along the 84, almost the full length of the 84, we got uh, light rail and, and the freeway. What has it done for removing congestion? Light rail has never been successful getting high ridership uh, and reducing congestion. In any city except one, and that one is the line in San Diego, which goes from the Tijuana border in through town. And the reason that's so successful is that when the people come in to work every day (laughs) pouring across the border, many of them walk, and so they have to get onto a public transit. And so that line (laughs) has a bunch of ridership. It's very exceptional. Call it the Tijuana Express. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Here we have light rail run alongside a freeway. I would think that if you're going to continue to construct light rail, you got a new branch of light rail, they want to bring light rail across to Washington State here, one of the first things you would do, if you're going to be logical, is you would look and see, well, what has it done to relieve congestion where we've already created it, in our neighbor to the south? Are there no metrics? Is there no way that we objectively measure and compare and honestly look at the truth of that? No, it's never based on, on empirical evidence. It's always based on a theology. For example, the first system was the one that you're talking about along 84. Mm-hmm. That was the east side system. And then we went out to Hillsboro, and that's the west side system. It not only doesn't relieve congestion on the Sunset Highway, but it doesn't even make it faster. It's a very slow system. And the best evidence of that is the fact that the express bus that ran from Hillsboro to downtown Portland, which is the route of the West Side Line, ran faster in the peak hours than light rail does. It was a much faster service. 
one of the things that light rail does is they usually build where there's a very good bus system because that's where they have transit riders. Most of the riders on light rail were previously transit riders on the buses. Under federal law, you're supposed to distinguish between riders and new riders. Those are people that didn't take transit before. But we never see that show up in their projections. Now, when we construct a new rail line, that's, that takes hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. I would think that there ought to be some kind of a test, uh, some qualification that would say, well, if you're going to have some performance uh, that you need to achieve in order to justify that expenditure. Are there no qualifications that the sources of the funds would require in order to justify that expenditure? No. FTA, Federal Transportation Administration, does have requirements, but they're overridden. And in the state of Washington, this new line that they want to bring across the river is promoted very heavily by Patty Murray. She doesn't care about the numbers. It's by okay. votes. Those that are arguing for light rail, yes, they want to get reelected. Why would they really argue for light rail if it's not going to relieve congestion and it's going to take funds away from widening freeways? What are the actual pure motives? The spending of the money is the end, not what the spending of the money achieves. That's rule number one. The light rail uh, thing is very good for politicians as opposed to building a new road, but you don't really have a, a ribbon-cutting ceremony when you open a road. You don't have it. But when they start a rail line, they have the ceremonies, they give out free hot dogs at all the stations, <laughs> the opening day, it's a big celebration, and the, and the people that brought the money from uh, in the state, you know, get up and make all, all these speeches. And that's the end. It's not what the system does. The yellow line, that's the one that goes through the Expo Center. It runs right along I-5. The yellow line has done nothing to relieve the congestion that they're all talking about now as the reason for the bridge, except that under Metro thinking and the city of Portland thinking, they aren't going to give more lanes for cars and trucks. They're going to give the additional lanes for light rail. And they're talking about uh, the other one being an HOV lane, high occupancy vehicle. That's not very good unless you have certain circumstances. And we have had an HOV lane that goes from just north of the Fremont Bridge to... And how's that working? It, very badly. But they don't care that it's working very badly. Why don't badly. they remove it? Why don't they turn it into uh, a regular three-lane freeway? I have no idea because all the numbers show that it's really uh, stupid. And they have an awful lot of violators. It's not a, that, that doesn't mean HOV lanes and other places aren't very good. We have some very good HOV lanes. And, and, and the one on 395 going from Virginia into Washington, D.C. is an outstandingly su successful HOV lane. But this one is only two and a half miles long. Now, if you go twice as fast in two and a half miles from 30 to 60, what are you saving? Two and a half minutes? You, you were talking about the carpool lane on the 5. I think you call it the Shirley Highway. Tell us about that. That's, that's the one that goes from Virginia to Washington, D.C. It's barrier-separated, two lanes in one direction, and it has little places where the police can, you know, not block traffic. But the most interesting thing that they have is that there are very few places where you can get on to the, to the Shirley Highway, and they have their own dedicated entrances and exits. They do not use the same ramps or anything. It's completely different. And at the entrances, like Springfield, Virginia, I usually stay in Springfield. That's where most of the people at DOT live. If I'm driving a rental car, I'm by myself. I can't use the HOV lane. Uh, you have to have more than two in a car. What they have is this great big parking area just before the ramp that goes onto the uh, HOV lane. People park there and then go out by the curb and you pull over to the curb. It's called the slug system, and the people that go on the cars are, are called slugs. You just pull over, they jump into your car, 
and then you go in on the HOV lane. And the rules are the, they go free, you know, and they could sleep, they could do whatever they want, they can't touch the radio. That's the driver's option. <laughs> really? This, is that right? It's kind of like a hitchhiker arrangement. They usually have four in a car. The DOT in, in Washington allows carpools with four to park free in the parking lot under the DOT building, uh, which is a wonderful way to get carpooling. Carpooling has diminished since 1990. We get all of our good information in the, the census every 10 years. Our ca carpooling has gone down. Some of those people have switched to transit, Why? but the number of people in cars has not gone down because of convenience. Um, one of the problems with carpooling is that you have to get your pool together unless two people in a family, three people in a family are going to the same place, you have to get them and you don't always have, here where we live, neighbors going to the same place. In Washington, D.C., all the government workers are going into mm. D.C. and so you've got a lot of people going to the same place. Mm. But here we don't. And so it takes you longer to arrange. We used to have uh, uh, two laws, federal laws, called um, Eco-Employee Commute Options and trip reduction program, TRP, where employers had to get people to carpool, not give everybody a parking space. And we have that on the books. And then in 1995, Gingrich decided, yeah, we'll have committee hearings on this. And all of the major companies at that time, AT&T, Texas Instrument, all of the major companies went and did, did studies. And then they all came in and they said, very unsuccessful program, because we do have the requirement that people coming into the company parking lot have more than one person in the car. But all they're doing is parking just down the block. So they're doing 99% of the trip in separate cars, and then they just get together and come into the parking lot. And so they got rid of TRP and ECO at the federal level, but a lot of the states have it. Now, in Oregon, the way what they do is they use that as a coercive measure to get major employers like Intel to buy tickets for their employees. And they don't care whether they're used or not. It's just a, a way of making a donation to TriMet. And I did a study out there at the uh, Hawthorne Farms Intel station. Intel was there before the train. The train went to where Intel was. It wasn't Intel came because of the train. And I did a study, I found that less than 1% of the people that go to Intel come by that train with free passes. So even when you have a train, when you, when you have a light rail line that goes where there's a major employer, convenience still motivates people to take their car. Because what do we have as the most precious commodity? Most of us, it's time. Time. Door-to-door -door service, that's the major thing. For example, when we had the trunnion repair and we closed one of the spans, at that time we had free Amtrak service from I-5 next to the, the foot of the bridge, no cost, directly into downtown Portland Union Station. There were a few people who tried it the first day, very few, and then the second day nobody came back. Because by the time they drove all the way there, parked, and then took the free train downtown. It took longer than if they just went all the way, even in the congestion. So when one, one span of the bridge was closed, the adjacent railroad was used to offer free rides across the river in order to compensate to have an alternate way across. And even though it was free, even though it was right there, very few people were interested in that. So this whole CRC project, this whole light rail project, it's not about solving traffic congestion. It's not really about improving no. transportation. It's really about getting the money and spending the money. Right. And that track that Amtrak uses, it's owned by the commercial railroad. That's available. So they could Those conduct an experiment now. They could actually move passengers back and forth there, even for free, now. And all they'd have to do is because the, the, the line is, is not used all that much for freight, uh, because North Portland doesn't really have all that much freight going into uh, that area. They usually leave the long trains of freight cars on the main line, but they don't have to. We could all just build very inexpensive spurs where they just park on a spur, and then it would be available, and they could do it 
all day long to downtown. Make no mistake, TriMet is broke, desperately broke. They need money, and they want to get up into Clark County to collect money. So the sales tax increase they're talking about here that would go for the operation and maintenance of light rail is really going to go to TriMet? TriMet is, will own that uh, the entire line. It has nothing to do with CTRAN. So if we build the light rail on this side of their bridge, we open the door and then we can never close that door. Never. We are obligated to pay for that, You're whatever the cost is. Absolutely right. It is something that's very hard to undo. And one of the reasons that it's very hard to undo is that technically when you accept money for something from the feds for a project, if you decide to close the project, you have to give the money back. How many have ever done that? Nobody ever closes it because <laughs> they, well, they don't have the money to give back. They probably would find out that giving back the money over time would be cheaper than running a line that is costing you so much money. Well, here, we don't have the ability to vote on this yet. Actually, we don't have the ability to vote on light rail at all to install it or even on this uh, whole light rail crossing project. But as close as we can get is perhaps next year we'll have an opportunity to increase our sales tax by a tiny fraction of 1%. And I wonder how is that going to be sufficient to satisfy the needs of TriMet? Oh, it isn't. Uh, the way TriMet works over across the river is payroll taxes. Every employer pays a payroll tax. Okay, we don't have uh, that any... You plan will. right now for the operation <laughs> in light... Well, that's, that's my question. The only plan right now for the operation of light rail is this tiny fraction of 1% of our sales tax. Is that just simply the bait that will just trigger it, and then we're obligated whatever it takes to, to meet that need? I would think if, if they want to get this thing approved, if they're going to be kind of shrewd about it, they would just say, it's hardly anything. It's two cents on $10. What's that? We open the door, we build light rail, we have a means and say, hey, guess what, guys? It's going to cost 100 times that. And do, do you we have think, a choice at that point? No. And do you think it's going to stop with the line just coming across the bridge and going up Broadway? Their plan is to go all the way across the county and come back on the, on the 205 bridge, which takes lanes away from the 205 bridge because they're not going to build another bridge there. I would think that the best indicator of where we expect the future to go is look at where's the past gone. Has Portland ever said that's enough no. in any of their light rail lines? As a matter of fact, what they do is when they build one unsuccessful line, they say that's because we don't have the next part in place. Now, when we enlarge the system, the larger the system is, the better all the lines will be, which is rubbish. So you feel like this is just simply a foot in the door and this is the push here is going to take it north, it's going to take it east, it's going to expand once you, once you open the door here. It will go on and on just the way it has. I mean, they have the most ridiculous lines. The last line that they built is called Wes. It only runs during the peak hours, and it runs from Beaverton to Wilsonville. Now, when Tom Ryan spent, the, he was the um, chair of the Washington County Commission, he was the guiding guy to promote this line and get the money in the state and from the feds. Uh, and they spent $165 million to build a line from Beaverton to Wilsonville, which was a ridiculous line. It, we couldn't even afford to run a bus on that route. And here he is putting in a $165 million line. Now, at that time, he said, Wes would carry as much as another road if we built another highway going on the same route. So after they opened, we did the study of what the segments that adjoin, uh, it adjoins two, two freeways, I-217 and I-5, because West comes down along 217 and then turns and, and goes to Wilsonville along from Tiger to Wilsonville along I-5. So we only took those segments of I-5 and 217 and what is being carried on that and how much is being carried on West. One half of 1% of the riders use WES. So if we would have just put in an additional lane on each of those roads, we'd have gotten 50 times 
the usage. Where is the accountability? Where is the truth in the reporting on the, on the truth of these things? It seems absurd, the, the direction that, that we're going and the reasons that we're going there, it seems absurd. How do we uh, stop this? How do we fix what's broken here and do the things that will actually make a significant improvement in transportation at an affordable cost? The propaganda mills on this side of the river, the Colombian, has always been in favor of bringing uh, this ridiculous thing across. They were in heavily into the campaign of giving only one side of the story uh, in 94 and 95 when we defeated light rail coming across the bridge. As a matter of fact, there hasn't been a vote for light rail by the people. All the uh, things that were built on light rail since 98 have been done without votes of the people in Portland. They've spent $5 billion over there. How can you spend that kind of money without ever having a vote? Because when they first proposed the line that they are starting to build now to Milwaukee, when the legislature appropriated money, we referred that, that appropriations bill to a vote of the people statewide, uh, and that was in 96, and we beat them. That did away with it. And then they said, well, we couldn't win statewide, but the metro area where we got all of our, you know, real loyal people, you know, uh, there, all these transit-oriented people, well, we'll only have a vote in metro. That was in 98. And we beat them. It was voted down in 96, 98, and it was voted down here in 95. And they've never had a vote since. At first, the people were sold on uh, the bill of goods. Light rail is going to be wonderful. And you can see it in the tolling report and all the stuff that they're putting out on CRC. You know, it's going to take all these people on to light rail and get them off the roads. And so people at first were beginning, were saying, well, well good, anything that gets other people off the road. So I can have the road to myself. I'm for that. You know? And so, you know, that was a big thing. But, you know, people are wise to it on the other side of the river. You know? So now they've got some history on it, and they, are, they, don't want to they ever, know what the reality is. They don't want to ever bring it up for a vote. And they avoid bringing it up for any kind of a vote. Because an up or down vote on, on rail now fails. People don't, they know they won't use it, and they know other people aren't using it. And they know none of the roads have become uncongested. They don't see anything in it anymore. When the Washington, uh, the, um, the one to Hillsborough, the, the West Side Line, was underway, Elizabeth first was the congressman from Washington uh, County, and, and uh, she was so out there promoting the West Side Line, saying, it's a jobs bill, it's a jobs bill, it's going to create all these jobs. How many bridge builders do we have in this area? None. <laughs> no. Because we haven't built any bridges in this area. Bridge building is a very specialty. I mean, very few. And getting people to work on bridge building because of the, the heights, you know, above the, the water, above the land, uh, it's kind of like getting people to work on the top of skyscraper. Mm -hmm. Those people are specialists, and they come in from wherever they come in. And the only thing that we get that are local jobs are a few electricians who do electrical work after the bridge is built, and they put in the electrical work for the, the rail system. But that's not that many jobs. Oh, yeah, you get some concrete you know, mix work that will be shared among different concrete operators. We would get that anyway if we just build a bridge with no light rail. Well, Mel, if you know all this and you see what's happening here, does that make you feel like, hey, just give up the system, it's just way too broke? There's no fix in this thing? Or you feel like, hey, I'm a fighter, I'm going to start to do whatever I can to right what's wrong here? Well, I don't have the megaphone that the Colombian and the Oregonian have. So they have a responsibility to tell the truth. Why aren't they telling <laughs> you? That, why, why aren't they giving the, the straight scoop, the truth, nothing but the truth, the whole truth? <laughs> when, when we were doing the, uh, uh, the, the uh, campaign in 94, 95, before the 95 election, 
we tried to get op-ed pieces into the Colombian, and they rejected all of my stuff. I mean, uh, what's what's it in it for them? They're very much into the the downtown establishment, the port, the uh, downtown chamber of commerce, downtown realtors. I have this. Uh, thing that if we just put rail in there, it's going to really reinvigorate the downtown area. But that's not happened. So all of the rail that goes into a downtown Portland hasn't done anything to make the downtown sure. you know, bigger and better. Well, anytime you have a theory, you have an idea, rather than go out and spend all your money trying to just simply prove it true, the first thing that prudence would do would be to to find out how true is it in the real world already. Where can you test it? Where can you find out if that, te- if that idea has already been put to the test? Well, that's something you would do with your money. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're doing, doing it with taxpayer money, oh well. You know, I mean, we have this crazy thing that the, the whole country has come to believe in a never-ending stream of money from various layers of government. Those are all broke. And we don't come face to face with the fact that we don't have the money laying around. There is no lockbox. We are just stressed on, on everything, not just highways and whatever. We are stressed on, on everything. And yet we're wasting money on these billion-dollar projects. We used to talk, and every Dirk Dirksen said, uh, you know, a millionaire, millionaire, so you're talking about big money. But now it's, you're talking billions and trillions. We're bringing in $2 trillion at the federal level and spending $3 and $3.6 trillion. We've crossed some threshold where it is clearly not sustainable, so we can't keep doing what we've been doing. It's broken. It's hard to get people on the street to realize that. You know, if we only uh, got money from the rich, you know, you could take every dime that they have and it wouldn't matter that much. And by the way, all of the, the data over years and years and years said that no matter what the tax levels were, how much we charge corporations or wealthy people, we only arrive at a 19% area. Yeah, because they uh, find ways to avoid taxes. That's why the CPAs and the tax attorneys make the big bucks. Mel, anything you want to say just to wrap things up? Oh, by the way, the tolling report that's out, but nobody ever reads and the newspapers ever report, they're talking about doing variable tolling, and they're talking about during the peak hours going up to about eight and a half bucks one way. I mean, you tell the guy on the street that he's going to have to be paying 16 bucks a day in tolls, that ain't going to sell, but they're not telling them. You would think that before we take on a project, we would know what the cost of the project is going to be, what the financing for the project is going to be, what the tolls are going to be. All these toll prices they've been quoting have been the transponder price, where the best comparison we have here is the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. We add $1.60 to each toll if you're not going to buy a transponder. So that brings the price up another dollar sixty. If it was comparable, this is the cost of this project is about three times what the Tacoma Narrows Bridge is. So if you're going to add that extra cost, it's going to be quite a significant draw away from local economy. This cash is going to be flowing out of here just to be able to drive across the bridge. Well, first of all, the whole idea of variable tolling when we have a peak hour problem is incorrect. For one thing, variable tolling is based on people having elastic freedom to travel during, during some other time. So it's a motivator. That you don't travel during peak times, we're going to penalize you. But we know that peak hour commute traffic is inelastic. People are going to work. And then if they want to keep their job, they're going to have to go at those times. We, we played around a lot with getting businesses to go to different beginning times and that didn't work out very well and that's pretty much gone but for a while we were doing an awful lot of that with the industry uh, and it just didn't work they have to function at certain times it's an inelastic thing so it means that those people are going to be trapped into doing that because they have to pay the toll because you have to get across the river which is one reason why if you do tolling you really have to do both bridges 
because everybody will end up on one bridge. You said earlier that this is really not about solving congestion. This is about just simply getting the money. That's right. By the way, what they say in the use of money for tolling, it will be used for transportation. Well, we've always used it just to pay the bonds on the bridge. And then the maintenance went on with the maintenance money that Highway Trust Fund pays us, both on the state and federal level. But they are saying, oh, no, these tolls will remain and be used for transportation. Can you read transit? And they're not telling the people the whole story. If this is really about getting the money, the logical conclusion is that you would try to maximize the cost of this project. And you'd really want to maximize the cost of the tolls because that's a ever-flowing source of funds into government. And we've never really had that. I mean, we've had tolls that stay on bridges that are very low-usage bridges, like the Bridge of the Gods and uh, the Hood River Bridge. They continue with tolls because the usage over the bridge is so little that the only amounts they get pay for the maintenance. But the usage that, that we have on the two bridges, 250000 per day now, is very large, and we can pay off a bridge in very little time. That's a very good investment. If I had the money, I'd, I'd build a bridge, because you know? <laughs> I know it, it'll be a, it's a cash cow. Mm -hmm. you know, so you, you pay off your bonds in no time. But ongoing tolls at these preposterous rates that you're inflicting on, you know, on working people, nobody in their right mind goes across the bridge during peak hours if you can avoid it. They're not doing it now. They're not doing it. They're not doing it for pleasure. Right. They're going because they got to go. That's right. When I came over here, I don't drive across the bridges in the rush hour. And people don't go across the bridge to shop at Hayden Island for the morning. So people are already aware that there's going to be a heavy traffic there, so let's go some other time. In fact, I, I realize now that quite often when we talk about going to visit somebody or going to make some plans, we'll consider the traffic, and if the traffic, we know the traffic's going to be heavy, we'll try to find an alternate way. So that's already in play. If, if, there, if there was a clear way to get across the bridge anytime you wanted to, then you could have much more traffic going during the day, during, during peak hours, because peak hours can, can still carry it. And perhaps you would have, end up with more customers in the stores, more business, more economy, better jobs, you just said it got more blood flow in the circulatory system we have here. That's the lifeblood of our, of our economies. People moving, freight moving, customers moving. Now, Portland has got this uh, belief that it's great to screw people uh, from Clark County because then they'll move back to Portland. Change the behavior. That's Earl Blumenauer's famous things that they... They still live and die. Why would with. they want people from Clark County to move over there? They're already high density over there. Oh, that's not high enough for them because they're not really gaining uh, people. They have some very highly subsidized places like the Pearl, which cost the taxpayers a fortune. The subsidy was $55,000 per apartment that the taxpayer put in in the Pearl mm -hmm. District. They're not doing all that well. The condos aren't, you know, doing all that well. But they, what they get in the way of um, uh, sort of like San Francisco was in the same boat. They get a lot of young unmarried uh, people to live there, even uh, people that work in, in Intel way out in Washington County at the end of the urban growth boundary uh, will live in the Pearl because they start early. They go before the peak travel time. They come work very late. They never cook. So the restaurants there, you know, are very happy. And so uh, they're attracting San Francisco and, and, and Portland are, are becoming less family-oriented. You don't need very many schools in the core area because you, you don't have very many kids. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I mean, that's what's happening. And that's one of the reasons why families are all settling in the suburbs. The schools are better, the atmosphere you know, is better. Crime is always less. Where I live, I live in the West Hills, and it's not in the congested areas. When they gave the bit about, well, why don't you guys annex into uh, Portland, the city of Portland? I'm in the county, but not in the city. And uh, somebody asked the question, will you give us 
uh, regular police patrols if we annex in. And then the representative from the police department was a very honest person. He got up and he said, I'm sorry, we have to keep all of our uh, personnel where the crime is. That's downtown. Uh-huh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh-huh. And so... So he said, no, we're not going to put any patrol cars out there. We, we just don't have the staffing. Well, we moved up here in order to get away from the high density down in Southern California, and this has been a, a very nice quality of life for us. Uh, the inner city, people can choose that if they want to, but hopefully the character that we have here can continue. I'm afraid that if we bring light rail here, that the, the density will have to climb in order to try to justify it. It's kind of a downward spiral. Um, Mel, I, I thank you for, for sharing your thoughts, taking your time out today to be able to chat. appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure.